Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast. If you want more information on the things we're doing, go to the Park Hills Church app or parkhillschurch.com. First of all, good job on the Mother's Day sermon. Oh, thanks. It definitely fit the motif. <laughs> Just for the record. Always fun to do. Yeah, we don't talk about this a lot, but one of the things that people need to know is we we will address certain holidays occasionally, but we are not going to follow a sermon schedule based on the Hallmark holidays. So right. We don't necessarily do Mother's Day sermons or Father's Day sermons. If we're preaching through a book, we just stick with the book. With that said, it's not that we don't honor either of mothers or fathers or any other potential holiday that there is. Uh, it's just, just is what it is. We, yep. we're, we're, we're focused, and so we're going to keep going what we're doing. So with that said, we got a bunch of little things to pull out from this passage that you did. So yeah. what are some of them? Yeah, the first one we're just going to hit quick is the use of the term baptism, because Jesus, in talking to James and John, says, uh, will... Will you, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? So it's three three times there. Yeah. And then later, you know, uh, he says them, the cup that I drink, you'll drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Uh, so we're just going to touch base on just a, a fun little Bible nerdy thing. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about something called semantic range today. Ooh. Yeah, Chris, what is semantic range? Semantic range is really looking at a word, typically from a language that you do not speak. Correct. That all of a sudden it has a potential definition that could range a number of different possibilities. And so in some, I'm trying to think of a good Hebrew one or a good Greek one. Uh, I can give you a good English one if you need an English do a, one. Do an English one. Because, Let's go. Because this is what my professor did. He said, all the definitions of the word green. Sure. And like I can say, like the, my shirt is green, and then you think of a color, yep. but then some related to the color, but not necessarily meaning the color, would be like, man, I I hit seven balls right on the green today. Right. Well, I'm talking about a location right. on a golf course. Or, or you're looking green today. Yeah, you're looking green. That is means like, you're ill. Right. Or I say, Chris, give me some green. Like no. Well, now we're talking about something that is green, but I'm not talking. Oh, about you weren't really asking. Right, right. Okay. And, and, you know, green actually can mean multiple emotions. It can mean envy yes. or disgust. You know, so, mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, the, he, we, in, in one of my classes, he would write the word green, and uh, the class could list, like, almost mm-hmm. 30 definitions. And so semantic range is like, this one word green can mean any of these 30 things. Yep. Uh, one of the, the fallacies of Bible interpretation is then to say when this word is used, it means all of these things at the same time. Correct. Like sometimes it's just one little thing. So baptism, uh, often when we think of baptism or the word baptized, we're thinking of the Christian rite of immersing a person in water yes. as a sign of their faith in Christ. Yes. Uh, which is which is really funny. It's just an interesting thing because Jesus, when he commands believers, you know, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then at that moment, it becomes this ordinance that we, we use the term ordinance uh, that we in the Christian church use. Yep. But before then, it existed before then. Like oh, Jesus, yeah. Jesus got baptized by John, who was baptizing other people. So baptism right. was a thing that they did as a ritual right. of turning, of heading one direction, heading the other. But 
when Jesus uses the term here, he's not referring to that. Uh, no, he's not referring to water baptism because first he's already done that. Right. And, he, and second, he didn't have to. He did it as Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness, which means to show them that I am exactly who they're looking for and, and what I'm ultimately going to be. But then he wouldn't say to the disciples, I'm going to go baptize you now so that you can baptize, be baptized in the same baptism that I did. Right, right. So this term, uh, baptism, and its general definition is the idea of immersing or dipping sure. or dunking. Uh, and so you see in extra biblical literature or literature written at the same time but not in the Bible, people are referred to as being baptized in debt. Sure. Like, oh, they have so much debt they feel swamped by it, right? We sure. might use the term, oh, I'm swamped in debt, right? That doesn't mean right. that I went out to a swamp because I was sad about my debt. It just right. meant, uh, it's used in Luke 11. It says the Pharisees were astonished to see that he did not first baptize before dinner. Yep. They dip his hands in the water and wash. So nothing that really like throws off our understanding of this passage. It's just interesting to mention. And then we get to have a little discussion on semantic range. When Jesus uses the word baptize here, he's not talking about Christian baptism that we encourage people to do in the church today. Yeah. And I think clearly what he's talking about here is that you're going to die the death that I die in some regard. And we, in some ways we actually have created another semantic range for baptism in, in our world. We could have mm-hmm. just used that as a definition, right? Cause if someone jumps into a job that a lot of things are happening all at the same time, they would say, Oh, that person was baptized by fire. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like if you took over like a lead pastor position and suddenly you had to hire Man, a number who of would, staff, who would do that? I don't know. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a certain baptism by fire that people, we've used that for for years. And so, you know, eventually that person becomes a battle-hardened individual. And that what we say is, oh, they were baptized by fire. That's why they're so gritty and yeah. Uh, yeah. just being ridiculous. But yeah, so that's exactly what Jesus is talking about there with the disciples. And they say, yeah, we're going to be baptized as well. And then he says, yes, you will. And enjoy every minute of that because yep. it's going to be brutal. Yep. All right. Quick hit into that. All right. That was good. Let's jump over to more of the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this idea of the Son of Man. So this is a phrase that Jesus uses of himself, uh, like I talk about in the sermon, verse 33, the Son of Man will be delivered. And then Jesus picks up that phrase and verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So I know I talked about it a little bit in the yep. sermon. But I thought we'd go a deeper dive into when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which he does like 15 times in Mark, 14, yeah. 16, uh, somewhere. It's, it's his most common term of himself in the book of Mark. Yes. And uh, in, I think it's, it's in the 30s in Matthew. Jesus like clearly uses this term. It's really interesting. The gospel writer, I mean gospel writers, the, the letter writers, so Paul and Peter and James, they never refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. No. So... Uh, some people have thought like, oh, the editors of the New Testament like added this in and put words into the mouth of Jesus to try to make the connection to, for example, Daniel chapter 7, which we'll talk about. But I think that's a good point that they never call Jesus the Son of Man. And so I don't think the early church was trying to force that title upon Jesus. I think Jesus used it of himself because who is the Son of Man, Chris? Jesus? Yeah, but I mean... <laughs> Daniel chapter 7. I was, no, I, I know what you're trying to Man. get to. I was going full Sunday school mode there. It's Jesus. But let me read Daniel 7. Or are you looking it up? Uh, I had it, but my little... We did talk about this briefly. Mark and I did. When our very first podcast in the book of Revelation, we talked about the Ancient of Days, and we talked about the, the Son of Man. And so let me 
read this passage very quickly. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked because of the sound of the great words of the horn that were being spoken. And I looked, and the beast was killed, its body was destroyed, and burned with fire. As for the rest of their beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then it says this, and here's where we get to the Son of Man. Verse 13, if you're following along. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. And so these are two different people. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which would not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so we see that there's this individual that comes not as the conqueror himself. Correct. But as the one who is given dominion over what the Ancient of Days has conquered. Which sounds very similar to Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, which is why the disciples begin to make this connection after the resurrection, and the book of Hebrews weaves all of these things together to build us this beautiful picture that Jesus is something greater than we've ever seen before. Right, right. The one who truly uh, is able to have this dominion and power, who can approach the Ancient of Days, which we know to be God. And it's funny because this statement really says, this is the anti-antichrist, right. which just the anti-anti means the Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Like you you see Revelation depict the antichrist as someone who tries in, to, you know, who attempts to do all these things. Yep. But the anti-antichrist, the actual Christ, is the one who is given all of this, not as a conquering hero, not right. as the horse rider. Right. And... It's interesting, Jesus sometimes calls himself the Son of God, sometimes calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man statements are actually more powerful and, mm-hmm. in Jesus' day, more blasphemous than himself, than he calling himself the Son of God. Because in, in Jesus' day, the Israelites would have seen Israel as God's son. Yeah. And so for him saying the Son of God, yeah, we're all God's son. Israel is the... We came from God. Right. So it's, it's actually when Jesus says the Son of Man, that's a pretty heavy, hefty statement based on what he's referencing. He's like, hey, Daniel 7, you know this guy, this one like the Son of Man who stands next to the Ancient of Days? That's, that's me, by the way. Yeah, and for him to claim, as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, to claim I am in a couple of places, he's making the connection that the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man are one and the same and somehow, but yet distinct, <laughs> which right. gives us some of the groundwork that we begin to lay for what we would eventually call the theology of the Trinity. Right. It's, I, and it's sticky. Yeah, and that's interesting. Like, we see, we, we have this term we call biblical theology. That doesn't mean not biblical theology is unbiblical. It's just the term that was used for a type of thinking as we see God reveal things over time. Right. Right, and so it's interesting how the Trinity is revealed, but very clouded in the Old Testament. Yeah. Like, were, were any rabbis in Jesus' day Trinitarian? Not Trinitarian, but there's a lot of work that was done by fairly recently by people who, through the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things, have noticed that one of the things they were discussing was that there is what's called the second power of heaven. Mm-hmm. And so most rabbis at the time of Jesus actually did believe that, say, the 
the angel of the Lord or the leader of the Lord's army was an actual Yahweh figure who was presenting himself in a physical form and leading the armies of Israel to victory. Mm-hmm. And so they were already building this case that there was one coming who was Yahweh, but wasn't the one on the throne. And so they started calling him the second power of heaven. So he became the prince of heaven. And some have tried to make this ri- ridiculous statement that that's similar to like El and Baal in the Canaanite religions. It's not even close to the same thing. Uh, but what the rabbis are talking about is that this second power. And what's interesting is Jesus uses terms like the Son of Man. He uses terms like, uh, you know, the, they, the disciples call him the Christ, the, the Son of the Living God. Right. They're seeing him as deity, and that is one of the main reasons why the Jews then begin to call that second power of heaven thing a heresy somewhere around 100, 150 AD. Something significant happened during the first century that made them push all of this aside and call it heresy. Yeah, like right around 30 to 33 AD. Something, Something very interesting happened. Yeah. 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 And the some I've actually read a number of documents as well that a number of rabbis point out that the sacrificial system stops having an effect somewhere around 30 AD and until the temple's destroyed in 70. So there's a number of documents that I've seen that say for the last 40 years, something was off with the temple system. We don't know what it is. And I'm mm. going, I know what it is. I yeah. can tell you what it is, but that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. We'll read the book of Hebrews. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that as Jesus starts making these claims about the son of man, he's talking about himself. It's interesting if, if the disciples are really seeing when he says son of man every time are like, oh, he's talking about himself now or he's talking about a different son of man. You right. think that his 12 disciples probably knew, but those around him that he's teaching maybe didn't quite put those together necessarily. But Jesus starts talking about the son of man, not as the conquering hero, which which was not messianic expectation of the day, but it clearly fits with, you know, for example, Daniel 7, where... He doesn't conquer. I, maybe they read Daniel 7 and said, well, ancient of days, son of man conquering. They must have done this together. Right. But that's not what happened here in this uh, prediction of his death. The son of man will be delivered and not even delivered. He'll be condemned to death by his own people. Mm-hmm. But then they will have to deliver him to the Gentiles. The son of man. This, You know, everyone's reading Daniel chapter 7 saying this is the person who rescues us from the Gentiles. Now he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. And verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served. That doesn't sound like your conquering hero, but came to to serve and give his life. Ah, the Son of Man is now giving his life. So, Yeah, for them it wouldn't compute at all because they're reading this and seeing power, dominion, authority, rule, which is part of what the disciples are struggling with all the way up until the Christ's death on the cross. They're They're struggling with... Wait, wait, wait. The Son of Man is supposed to be a conquering hero. And really, all Son of Man means is someone who is born from man. It, so he's using this term, but it's loaded with all of this intertestamental and late, pro, late prophetic words, you know, starting with Daniel and it shows up a couple other places as well. But even in earlier in Daniel, you remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. And it says one like a son of man was dancing with them in there. Does it say son of man there? I, yeah. thought, it, I thought he says son of the gods. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Oh, who? 
Hmm. All right, let's let's look. <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't quite remember. I gotta I gotta look and keep my face near the microphone. Yeah, no, it's good. All right, Daniel. But so what I'm saying while you look that up is really just all that's happening is the son of man idea is just someone who looks human. It doesn't necessarily mean deity. But what Jesus is doing is beginning to build this case that there's something way bigger going on with that son of man concept. And that's where we go. Yeah, so verse 25, right, Nebuchadnezzar, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that son of Elohim, is that what he's I'm saying? I'm looking it up it's, right now. Yeah, you look that up. Um, come here, then they came in the satraps, da, 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 the hair was not singed. Blessed be the God, in verse 28 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. It says that the king's man yielded their bodies, worship any god except their own god. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it says that the son of man was in there. Yeah. But, but I mean that... <clears throat> it said yeah. earlier that there's one who looks like a man walking around in there with them. Is what I That's what I was talking about. It doesn't say son of man exactly, but... Um, right, that's verse 25, but I see four men unbound. Yes, that's it. And yeah. yeah, but when he is saying, he's saying, yeah, Bar, Bar Elohim, son of, son of the gods. Son of the gods. Son of, there's what, like, is, what is verse 28 where he says, blessed, is that uh, Baracha, blessed to be to God, the God of, yeah. is that, yeah. what, what term is used for God there? Baraka ho elaha. So it's not Elohim there. But it is. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's Elohim, El. Yeah. But it's, yep, it's Elohim, but just a, a But it, is it plural? I don't know. The, I don't know the, uh, it is. Im would be plural. So if it's ha, it's not. No, it's a singular construct. Right. It's a common noun. Right, right. It's not plural there. So it's it's plural in verse 25, which could be, as, yeah. Anyway, we're kind of getting lost in some weeds here. That always happens. We just don't always bring that to the podcast, but I'm kind of glad we did this time. That was, yeah. that was fun for Th you. This is the kind of like thing that Chris and I will sometimes wrestle around like, oh, what is that verse? What did it say? Which term is used? Is it plural there? Yeah. What is that connection to Elo Elohim is a word yeah. for God, but if you didn't know Elohim is, is actually a plural, it's a plural majesty, Yeah. meaning that it, its reference is a singular God, but yeah. he's so great that you refer to him in the plural, but then sometimes it's hard to yeah. understand the Old Testament because sometimes Elohim means lowercase gods right. or uppercase God. Right. That's what we were digging through right there. Yeah, good times. Well, and, and back to what I was saying is that this individual looks like a man, but yet he declares him as the son of the gods or, or son, right, of, right. son of Elohim. And so then you go, wait, what is he talking about? What goes on here? So Jesus seems to be locking into this whole thing. And that's why a number of commentators have suggested that actually was Jesus in the fire. Oh, I think so. I do too. But I'm saying like that's that seems to be the biggest discussion is like is this really Jesus? I'm convinced he is the the Lord of Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the, the Lord's army basically. He's the one bringing yeah. the angels to attack. So in judges when it says there was suddenly an angel of the Lord standing before uh um, which one is? Are you thinking it? of Joshua? Yeah, no. Well, uh, well, I think Joshua, where he meets Joshua on the mountain. I think that's at the beginning of Judges. I think it is Joshua, but it's the it's, beginning of the book of Judges. Um, well, this is why we have Bible. Yeah, I know, right? There, there's this moment where all of a sudden there's this one standing in front, and he says, "Who are you?" And his sword is drawn. Then it says, "I am, <laughs> I am the commander of the Lord's army," and you're like, "What is going on here?" 
No, because it's also in Joshua and Joshua's overlook. It's a separate. These are two different instances where it, 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 he shows up all over the place. Right, right. In in Joshua, it's where Joshua sees him and is kind of startled, and he's like, "Whose side are you on? Are you for us or our enemies?" And he's like, "Neither." Yeah, that's uh, that's Joshua five, mm -hmm. thirteen. Look for thirteen. He says, "Are you for us or for our adversaries?" And he said, "No." I'm like, wow, <laughs> no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now mm -hmm. I have come. Mm -hmm. Joshua fell on his face and worshiped. This is why I think it's Jesus, because Joshua worships him. Yep. And the commander says, take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy. If this was a messenger of God or an angel, he would have rebuked the worship. Exactly. And he would not have declared the place holy. So yep. that's where that is. And, judges 1. And that same thing happens in the beginning of Judges 2, actually, is where I'm looking at it. And it says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and says, I brought you up. And it's a very similar phrase. And then you've got him showing up to, uh, I was thinking of um, him showing up to, what, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but I'm scrolling through here. Uh, Gideon, he does the same. Oh, yeah, thing. yeah. The, uh, yeah, the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Ophrah. That's in G Judges 6, uh, 11. And he's talking, and he's freaking Gideon out big time. But he's the same angel of the Lord that we've seen show up a number of other times. And you're going, oh, my goodness, this is exactly who we're looking for. And then he goes on to say in uh, about all kinds of different things. And Gideon sees him and says, the Lord is peace, right? Uh, in verse 24 there. So he Gideon seeing the Lord and saying he's he's peace, which ultimately comes to the phrase of he's the prince of peace, right? He's the mm -hmm. he's the ruler of the Lord's army. He's the one that's doing these things in a mighty way and I'm going, man, I want to follow that guy. So Yeah. Yep. So these little things pop up. Uh here Jesus he's calling himself the son of man. Pretty strong statement about who he is. I would say even more so than when he calls himself the son of God. I totally agree. And the language that he's using is locking all this in for the first century audience. They would know what they're talking about. We don't always necessarily know that. Minds would be blown.